Okay, so two months ago, sitting in a hotel in Frankfurt, Germany, I was with you, Doug Kide of the Boston Herald, the fastest guest to ever return to the Pass Interference podcast brought to you by FanDuel, the exclusive wagering partner of the CLNS Media Network. And I announced in that hotel room in Germany that this would be the most unprepared, off-the-cuff episode <laughs> in the history of my podcast. Lo and behold, we are back now for what will be absolutely no rundown, no prep. We even... What was it, an ice bucket there with Zach? I wanted the magic ice bucket of topics oh, that yeah. we pulled from. Yeah, yeah it was All a nice time. bucket. We we were not in our best shape because we had just flown cro- cross country and lost like six hours of our lives too. So uh, I I think this one will be better. Maybe not better prepared for, but better. Yes, for sure. Because, of course, we are uh, navel-gazing, I think, is the appropriate term today. <laughs> uh, talking about our own report um, recording here Thursday night, dropped the story this morning, the inside story of the Patriots hitting rock bottom in the Bill Belichick era. And if you have not read the story, I would encourage you to, not just because obviously that, that helps us at the Herald, but more to the point, you will find every little piece of information about the dysfunction that led to 4-12, and 12, the lowest scoring offense in the league, and issues with the coaching staff front office and roster that go back to Bill Belichick and Bill O'Brien. We're going to cover that here. We're going to have some new information here. And then we're going to look ahead to Sunday's game, which might be Belichick's last. And, okay, here was our preparation. (laughs) Me asking you, what do you think about just talking about this from a personal standpoint? Because no one wants to hear about stats or matchups with the Jets. We'll do a tiny bit of that. But more from, you grew up mostly in New England. I grew up in New England. Like, this is the end of a 24-year run, and how do we feel about that personally? But first, being professional, uh, writing this story. We talked to more than a dozen sources. We worked on this for months. And I think the best way to start is to go, uh, what interested you most? What shocked you most about everything that went wrong this season, the worst of the Belichick era? Um, personally, that they were worse than they were last year. Because I think that we all kind of thought that the offense hit rock bottom with Matt Patricia and Joe Judge, and then it somehow got even worse with Bill O'Brien as the offensive coordinator. And this isn't something that we include in the story, but like someone that I was talking to was saying essentially that like Matt Patricia and Joe Judge, like this wasn't him being critical of them. He was basically like, they didn't know what they were doing as offensive coordinators. Like they had never been offensive coordinators before. So they were essentially just like putting plays together in order to score the most points as possible. I know that sounds like very simple, but they didn't really have like, like a like a plan, like a scheme in place. They didn't have a system. They were just kind of a, assembling plays. And that sounds like as as bad as you could possibly get. But then it somehow got worse when the when Bill O'Brien came in and actually add, tried to add a system. Um, and obviously through our reporting, we kind of figured out why things got worse and why things were as bad and dysfunctional as they were. But it is pretty amazing that somehow they went from having these two coaches who didn't know how to run an offense or basically just like assembling plays to score points. Those two guys wound up having a more successful offense that scored more points than Bill O'Brien did. Far and away, not even close. And you could talk about injuries, which they had last season at offensive mm-hmm. tackle as they did again this year, or quarterback, which put Bailey Zappi on the field last year. Now it was just Mac Jones breaking before our own very eyes. But that offense was better. And that offense, we just were all appalled at. We were offended at watching week after week after week. There's not enough play action. There are not real quarterbacks coaches or offensive line coaches. That was better. And it wasn't because of injuries and schedule. It was due to uh, an offensive coordinator that came in. And this is what shocked me. 
is just really had no trust for his new assistants, including mm-hmm. the most high profile of them, Adrian Clem, who right. we wish a continued recovery from an ailment that forced him to leave at the end of October. And then he, we started unpacking why. And it, there's a reason for some of this distrust. Now, with Clem, it was the fact that he was teaching techniques and drills that were different from what the Patriots have run, even when Dante Scarnecchia weren't here. But it's since been referred to as like the darn Dante Scarnecchia set of drills and techniques that build a good offensive line. And so he's a guy who came back to New England as O'Brien did, but is not really part of the Patriot offense. Then you have a tight ends coach who came in because the Patriots' last tight ends coach, Nick Cayley's contract just expired. And then you have a couple under 30 guys who played defense in college, coaching running backs uh, and receivers in Vinny Sinceri and Ross Douglas. So Bill O'Brien, of course, looks around and goes, how am I supposed to work with this? And yet, I think in the way that he attempted, though he explained otherwise and feels otherwise, was not conducive to a productive, healthy environment that would have not only brought up the best in his own players, which did not from Mac Jones on down, but his own assistance. And no matter how bad it was, it felt like the Patriots made it worse by how they operated as far as you and I got to learn. Yeah, I think that Bill Belichick probably could have helped things by giving Bill O'Brien maybe more potential autonomy. Uh, But then Bill O'Brien probably could have helped himself out more by trusting his own staff more. I think that in all these cases, it's not like, there's no like one person at fault here. It's not, no. it's not even within the coaching staff, like the coach's fault. Like the it, same thing goes for like Adrian Clem, like, like Clem probably could have been better, but also the Patriots probably would have been better off if they had known what kind of coaching Adrian Clem had been bringing in and, you know, made sure that, there was going to be some crossover and carryover from the previous years or better crossover and carryover from the previous years. So I think it all just boils down to the fact that like Bill Belichick, still a very good hands-on head coach knows what the other team's got to throw at them, knows what his team needs to do. But just as far as like putting together an offensive staff and putting together offensive personnel, he's not the best person for that at this point in his career. So like, that like if there's finger pointing and this is something I talked about with someone where it's like, I was asking him like, is there a lot of clashes between the coaching staff and the front office? And like there have been, but it, it only reaches a certain point because the same person, Bill Belichick is in charge of both staffs. So like if you're, if you're going up the rung, eventually you're going to reach the top of the ladder. And it's the same guy in charge of both. Right. Who's going to tell you calm down or don't worry about it because it's not right. your job. It's my job. And I think I'm doing a fine job. Now, to that point, though, you can go up the ladder and not go to the top. Right. As Adrian Clem did in confronting yeah. Macro. And we wrote about one such instance. I'll say here that we could not confirm this. So do not aggregate this or take it as the same reporting that's all in that story. Clem had multiple run ins with Macro and some louder than others. Some it's just football coaches act in a way at at work that you probably couldn't get away with anywhere else. But he was upset about not being heard because obviously the talent, and that's really the issue here, right? Like we can agree the most predictable issues were their worst. The receivers were not good enough. The offensive line was not good enough. Nothing really mattered after that. Is that fair? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And so they make things worse. Like this was never going to be a great season, but it's been an all time worst one because of the stuff you'll find in the story. And what Clem was upset about was not having enough input and the input he did give was ignored. And so it's, of course, Matt Gross right to disagree. But when 
Adrian Clem is forced to start a guy at right guard who has spent all of the summer at right tackle in City South, who's been very good at right guard the last couple of weeks. Because you know what? He played there in college. Not tackle. <laughs> he played guard. And then instead it tackles Calvin Anderson, who has to speed up his recovery, as Mike Onwenu did, something else that didn't make the story. Mike Onwenu should have had an extra two weeks of recovery from the ankle surgery he went. He came back because of how bad things were. Um, Anderson's playing after not practicing. Starts again against the Dolphins and is the backup at three other games. We never see him. So naturally, Adrian Clem is going to be frustrated. And he let Macro have it, which are things that one such instance that we wrote about was loud enough. People in the front office heard, the coaches heard. And again, I don't think the consequence of that single blow up really means a whole lot. But what it highlights, what it speaks to, what it embodies is the dysfunction that we keep fi- keep finding as we peel back the layers of how the hell did they get here? Yeah, and then he also had some issues with the athleticism of some of the players right. on the offensive line, which I think the front office would come back with and say like, hey, Calvin Anderson, Tyrone Wheatley, Vidarian Lowe, like these guys have their issues, but it's not necessarily athleticism. It's more them as technicians, as players, and then I think that that's where they'd throw it back on Clem and say, like, that's something that you should be able to coach up and and coach better. So it really does go both ways in almost all of these situations. Um, and from his perspective, if you're looking at a guy like maybe Riley Reef, who was drafted in, what, 2011? Like, <laughs> that's that's one where you're like, yeah, athleticism, <laughs> probably going to be a problem. And also, you know, that's where – you might want to do a, a better job checking like, hey, what are the kind of offensive linemen that Adrian Clem right. works best with? Um, who, like, what are the players that he would want to work with? Because, like, just as far as the players that they even drafted, Antonio Maffi, you wouldn't necessarily praise for his athleticism. Like, I think he's probably a better, he's a stronger player than he is an athletic player, whereas City Sal might go the other way. But, no, I mean, I think that that's, that's where some of those clashes where we're coming from essentially all right now let me ask you this you uh you get a new job maybe it's in the boston herald and you find out or come to believe that your direct boss would not have hired you would have cleaned house <laughs> fired you fired me fired everyone else you work with um once he got on board and now you have to report to that person for a whole year how, do, how would you feel about that uh probably not great about that yeah well Another detail that we unearthed is that's how some offensive assistants felt, according to league sources, about O'Brien. We could not confirm that ourselves, which is very important to distinguish we that. Can but I think that the mere... from, from O'Brien, yeah, from O'Brien, yeah, right, right, yeah, 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 right, yeah, yeah, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. You know, they had heard that O'Brien, when he got hired in late January, wanted to clean house. Uh, we could not confirm that that's what O'Brien wanted and that he was limited to one hire. But it's worth noting the only person he was allowed to bring with him will lying replace the guy whose contract was expired anyway. Right. So it's no real skin off the Patriots back. Um, that's an issue and something that else that kind of speaks to that or would support that. If we're making an argument in court, we're not, we've reported what we said, we stand by it. Bill O'Brien kind of closed ranks during the season. Like they held more meetings all together as an offense quarterback sitting through offensive line drills, receiver sitting through running back tape and criticisms than they did in individual position groups. Now, I don't think this is, again, another thing that is a direct consequence of why they stunk, though Dan Orlovsky in late November is tweeting, the details of this offense are terrible, the purpose, the why, the play design, bad, 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 bad. That, to me, would explain why Dan Orlovsky was saying that and why 
certain details or development wasn't happening if these guys are not in the rooms with their position coaches because Bill O'Brien looks around him and goes, well, I can do better than them, so I'm just going to keep everyone together and everyone, players and coaches, will have to listen to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that that's like that mistrust in especially the wide receiver and offensive line yes. coaches to coach up and then also develop players um, was a, has been a major issue because like it's a, it's a lack of trust. It's a lack of um, just certainty. It's a lack of everything that like, it, if you don't trust them to develop them, if you don't trust them to coach them up, then obviously, like you said, that leads to more, full staff meetings and those players aren't getting that hands-on approach that they might need to actually improve. So once again, it is kind of like everyone at fault. And I think that, you know, it is a little bit odd that Bill Belichick has put what seems like such little value in offensive coaches. Like, especially when you look at maybe not Adrian Clem, but if you do look at like the running back and wide receiver situation where I've heard good things about some of these coaches. So I certainly don't want to like yes. lump them all in together. But like if you've got Vinny Sincero, who was an NFL safety coaching running back. So if you've got Ross Douglas, who was a college defensive back coaching wide receivers or, or Charlie Brown, who was, you know, out of the NFL for what, 15, 20 years or whatever it was before he came back to coach, it all seems to still stem down to like Bill Belichick putting a value on what he decides like something is worth. And if like, if that person or if that position or whatever it is goes above whatever value he decides it's worth, then he's going to let that guy go or not hire someone or not bring someone else in. So I think that's also part of what we're talking about. Where like, if you look back at the coaches that he allowed leave to Las Vegas, I think that's a big part of that. Like someone like Carmen Brasillo, he just decides at a certain point, like this is what I decide this is what I value at. If someone else is willing to give you more, then I'm going to let you go. But I think that kind of stems back to offensive coaches in general. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that that lack of trust uh, was obviously a, a major issue. And I think it all somewhat stems from the value that Bill Belichick is putting on offensive coaching. So it used to be that the Patriots played their best football after Thanksgiving. Well, I'm here to tell you, we don't have to wait for turkey and mashed potatoes and football for you to win and place your best bets of the year with FanDuel America's number one sportsbook because right now new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's $150 with a single bet if the team that you pick wins. So if you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, I'm telling you there's no better time than now to get in on the action. The app is super easy to use. I do it all the time. There's a wide range of options too if you don't like betting options like the money line. That's for me. If it's not for you, go for point spreads, player props, over-unders, and tons more. Just visit FanDuel.com Boston and get your winning in the NFL season, no matter what the Patriots do. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Must be 21-year-older and present in Massachusetts. Hope is here. First online real money wager only. $5 pregame money line wager is required. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as is a non-withdrawable bonus bet that expires seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling helpline ma.org. Call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. Play it smart from the start. GameSenseMA.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234. So two things on that. You're, you're, you're spot on. And I think it speaks to the whole operation from the draft board in April to the systems you want to run on the offense in July to late game decisions uh, in December. 
revolves still around Bill Belichick. And if he's wrong or makes some missteps or some misjudgments, he's going to take the whole operation down with him because the Patriots <laughs> have one of the smallest yeah. coaching staffs in the league. The front office goes through him, does not incorporate a lot of analytics in their evaluation, something else that did not make the story, but is absolutely true. And so more often than not, in the dynasty, of course, Bill Belichick was right. So instead of dragging everything down, everyone rose with him and they had better talent, which speaks to point number two. They did not see value, as we came to understand, in signing guys that I know I was pining for, Mike McGlinchey, Orlando Brown, Juwan Taylor, who got between $16 and $20 million in free agency, these players being elite offensive tackles, plug-and-play starters. And to, I'll say the Patriots' credit, uh, Mike McGlinchey is among the league leaders in pressure allowed. Uh, yeah. Orlando Brown's been fine. He's never been a top-ten offensive tackle. He's been fine, but he's paid like one. And so they said, instead of overvaluing that or, or spending bad money, They'll go discount shopping. Um, and that included the draft where they didn't like those blue chip players. And that's how you get back to the same problems. Like a lot of this is new, but with the old coaches out, you still had the talent issue because they just looked at the draft and said, no, we'll spend our first three picks. We have a quote about this from a source. We didn't invest in the offensive line until the fourth round, didn't take a receiver until the sixth. How do we spend the first three picks on defense when tackle was the biggest problem on the team last year? And the answer partly is Bill Belichick. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the Patriots will point out to you or people, certain members of the Patriots will yeah. point out to you that like, hey, the guys we didn't sign, like, look at their pressure numbers allowed. Like, we didn't necessarily make the worst decision there. Um, and some something that someone did say to me, which I thought was, you know, obviously a valid point is that like, they're not just trying to like, they're trying to build a team and they, they don't want to sign a player to a long-term contract that they don't like or don't feel good about. So like if it's like a one year deal for Riley Reef or something, then yeah, they're probably more willing to do that. But if they don't like Mike McGlinchey, if they don't like Orlando Brown, then they don't want to sign those guys to long term deals because ultimately there's still a long term plan in place. Like they're not only building for the 2023 season to be as good as you possibly can. They're also building for the future when they know that they're going to have more salary cap space in the future, and maybe that better option will come along. So I certainly think that they could have handled the offensive line better this season, uh, but they do raise some valid points about the talent level that was available for the money available. And then also along the offensive line, like, yes, yeah, some of those offensive linemen have wound up being pretty decent, but like as a whole, this year's offensive tackle class, they didn't feel very good about. Now, staying with the offensive line, because as I saw it, and you're always kind of intrigued when you write these bigger stories of what's going to get aggregated, what resonates most with people, right. what's interested, um, what inevitably gets aggregated incorrectly, then the blowback comes to you, not, you know, slapdickfootball.com. Uh, <laughs> they do good work, is, actually. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, Trent Brown became an issue over the last couple months of the season. You were first to report this on New Year's Eve, right before the Bills game, when he was a healthy scratch. Uh, as I had heard, before the Pittsburgh or after the Pittsburgh win, excuse me, they come back. Everyone's in a good mood. He's talking about playing for an NFC team next year. And that's a player that you go, okay, Trent Brown's fault. He's lazy. He's this, he's that. He also, for the first two months of the season, played through injury, serious injury, and was one of the best offensive linemen in football. When he also had incentives added to his contract to say, stay motivated, go get these, go get your money, which very much motivates Trent Brown. <laughs> and what I would say is, Yes, it's his fault for the second half of that season, being lazy, looking ahead, and, and not being really part of the team. But the Patriots made themselves beholden yeah. to that player whose issues with money 
and motivation and sometimes weight were well known before we got to the 2023 season. They knew this in 2018 when he first got here. And yet because of the lack of starting caliber tackles around him, he was the one that knew they need me. I'll do things my way. And as soon as the tough gets going, there goes Trent Brown. And that's my big issue with this is that there were options between Riley Reef and Calvin Anderson, a little bit of bad luck, but not a ton, and signing Orlando Brown and Mike McGlinchey because of just how bad last year was when Trent Brown was healthy for all 17 games. Find a middle ground. Those are not just the only two options, and they didn't. And I know there are people in the building that felt the same way. They're on the record. They're not on the record, but they're in the story. Well, I mean, there's, yeah, you could go pretty far back on the offensive line issues. Like, yeah, this isn't even necessarily like like perfectly related to the story, but I was reading Bill Barnwell's all pro piece from this week. And there were two players on that list who stood out to me. One is a first team. One is a second team. First team was Joe Tooney. And the second team was Shaq Mason. And just imagine how much better the Patriots offensive line would have been in the year 2023. If you had Trent Brown at left tackle, Joe Tooney at left guard, David Andrews at center, Shaq Mason at right guard, and Michael Wenu at right tackle. You'd be in pretty good shape there. Even if you decided, listen, we don't trust Trent Brown anymore. Even if you plug Isaiah Wen in there, who had a really bad season last year, but it was, to me, mostly related to them just flipping him over to right tackle and hoping that things would work out. And how guess pissed what? was he, by the way? It Can didn't. we stay there for a second? Like, I forget from time to time how from June. I don't know if you were there. Um, but he was. we would ask him about the switch. And just the largest frown I've ever seen in a man who's actually smiling, but was like doing it through his teeth in a way that I hate this. I'm going to do what I'm told. I'm trying to get my money in a contract year. And it was just an abject disaster for someone who obviously didn't want to be there. Yeah. And like, and it was a fixable disaster too, because the season before Trent Brown was playing right tackle and Isaiah one was playing left tackle and the offensive line was significantly better in 2021 than it was in 2022. And now that extends to 2023, but like you can, you can debate like, okay, how do they afford that offensive line that I mentioned? Yes. The Eagles have figured it out year after year after year, keeping like the exact offensive line intact and having one of the best offensive lines in football. They decided in, was it 20 or 21, 20, that Joe Tooney was worth franchising, but then they don't sign him to a long-term contract. If at that point, when you're franchising left to uh, Joe Tooney, you just sign him to a long-term ex- extension instead, you're in a much better shape monetarily then. You don't need to trade Shaq Mason if you're not going to draft Cole Strange, you can move Michael Winner to right tackle. It's just, it's a lot. Like, obviously we're, we're dwelling on this, but like they didn't need to get to this point where they were so beholden to Trent Brown, where they do have to treat him differently than the other 52 players on the roster, which at a certain point is what they had to do. And then once Trent Brown was dealing with the ankle and knee injuries, and once he was missing time, once he knew that he wasn't going to get the full value of those incentives that they added in September, then basically it all went to hell and it was a miserable situation for the last six or seven weeks. Perfectly put. Uh, Enough offensive line talk. And this does transition though, because the direct consequence of all of that poor offensive line play where they're bottom five or no, they're dead last in ESPN's pass block win rate. They're bottom five and PFF's pass blocking or pass protection grading um, was the deterioration of Mac Jones, a quarterback. And Mac right. is partially responsible for his own downfall. The team is as well. We detailed this in October and going into the story. I mean, you and I said, we don't want to cover old stuff. 
Okay. We don't want to bring up stuff and just repeat it for the sake of just telling a whole story. We're going to bring you new stories and understand people reading this know what's happened. And what happened was Mac Jones got benched four times in 11 games after he completed a career high 35 uh, passes against the Eagles in the season opener and just completely fell apart. And there was a real point of no return really against New Orleans where granted he started the next week against the Raiders in Vegas and came close to a comeback, yada, yada. Um, but that loss 34 to nothing, three more turnovers, including a pick six against the Saints after he did that against the Cowboys was when I had heard he really lost the locker room. And again, we don't have to go too much into the quarterbacks, but the dynamic of that room and why they were not able to get the best out of those players, which goes back to O'Brien and stuff we talked about earlier, was really interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, multiple people told me that they could have used I hate to say like adult in the room because, or I, well, I don't think that's what it was. That's what it was. Like, the, well, I, it, that is what they needed. I just don't want to say that like Will Greer wasn't an adult or something like that. Or like Trace McSorry. But <laughs> like, because they are. To stick like, around. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, like they needed someone to push everyone in the right direction. But like these issues stemmed from even last year where like Mac Jones is struggling, Bailey Zappi comes in and plays well. And then Bill Belichick opens it up coming into this season being like, we're going to have a quarterback competition, which never came to be. But then that leaves Mac Jones and Bailey Zappi in this competitive mode where they're both striving for their best interests. They have very different personalities. Like one's from Texas, one's from Jacksonville. Like they're, they're just two very different human beings who are right around the same age, who have the same personal goals, which are to be a starting NFL quarterback. Obviously they also want to win games, but if if you're creating an individual competition between two players, then that does take away some of the motivation to help the team win by doing what's best for the other person. And like, I think that even way back in March, when they cut Brian Hoyer, that's where this all kind of started because then you bring in Trace McSorley who was in a good position as someone who clearly wasn't as good as Mac Jones or Bailey Zappi, but he was so bad this summer that they had to move on from him. Then you get in the situation with Matt Corral, who had his own issues. Then you bring in Ian Book for like a day or two, and then you bring in Will Greer, who possibly could have been that person to bridge that gap and push everyone in the right direction. But he's then learning the offense and trying to figure out why he's even there, figuring out if like, hey, I was told I'm going to get to compete or like, yes. like yeah, he's told. That, that's another issue. It's just there There are no clearly defined roles here. And right. when the roles were clearly defined, there's one starter, it's Mac, and then there are backups. And then the roles were reversed. No one is abiding by those roles. Like there's no right. universal support for the starter, which is how virtually every other quarterback's room in the league works. But it didn't work in New England because we had heard they don't talk, Mac right. and Zappy. They're cordial yeah. and that's fine. And then when Will Greer comes in, and is signed to the active roster, which is we value you. You're on a practice squad. You got right. cut at the end of uh, training camp by the Cowboys. Go to Cincinnati. No, we'll take you. It just feels like a lie because he's also coming into that room, watching them play, practice, bomb, and be like, okay, I haven't played since 2019. I'm better than this. and doesn't even get a shot. Yeah. And when you're, when you're brought in being like, hey, you could probably push this. Like, Bailey's been bad. Like, you could push this guy. Like, you could. But then – it's not realistic because like trying to pass a backup on the depth chart 
when you're brought in three or four weeks in the season and having to learn the entire offense, like it's just not a realistic scenario that you're even bringing this guy into. So it's like, it's unfair to everyone in the situation. Like you said, you just don't have that, those clear defined roles of like this young guy is our starter. This veteran guy is the backup. He is not better than the starter. He is going to be a support system. And then you have a third guy who's a younger guy who you're developing there's like no expectations for him. I think that ultimately probably would have been, it, it was tough to do after last year because obviously Bailey Zappi still had value to the team since he had been good as a, as a backup starter in two games. So you couldn't just like get rid of him out of the offset, but maybe he could have slotted into that, like that third role. And then you would still had someone like Brian Hoyer or someone else in that veteran role behind Mac Jones in a clearly defined role to be like, you are the guy who is not going to start, who is not better than this guy, whose sole role is to support the others around you. And they never really had that. All right. A um, couple more tidbits and then let's move on. Because there's, there's a lot of stuff, you know, after that Saints game and even later that we picked up and really, you know, wasn't thrown into the end, but I think is important as we go moving forward. Number one, the reason that Billy Zappi didn't start earlier, as we've said before, is that he was playing poorly in practice. He was yeah. throwing as Mac struggled as many interceptions, if not more. He was not accurate. He was seven of 18 in his first two games in mop-up duty, basic coverages, same defense, you know, just chuck it and go, couldn't do it. Um, and, and he's like checking down to players and scout team, which is right, helping. Which no defeats one. the whole exercise yeah. of like playing a competitive quarterback against yeah. your starting defense. He was like, right. no, I need you to throw the backside dig so we can look at what that'll look like from, you know, Sam Howell or Tua or whatever it might be. Um, the other part is, you know, we did have quotes from Zappi about how Mac was. They're in the story to get his side of the story on the record and the room as a whole. The last part, zooming out, some people felt that Mac Jones got a raw deal that I had talked to. And they cite new quarterbacks, coaches, new offensive play callers, yada, yada. Um, and then others go, look, when you hold the ball, as Belichick likes to say, you hold more than the team. You hold a region, everyone's fate, all at once. Mac Jones clearly dropped the ball a lot on this. Yeah. And that's why it ended the way that it did for him. And Billy Zappi's continued to go on. Um, not to mention, like, <laughs> Bill O'Brien is now with those two and Nathan Rourke in his room. You or somebody asked him about Nathan Rourke a couple weeks ago. And he goes, yeah, I just saw him at the hallway. We're going to figure this out. Like <laughs> The quarterback's coach, the offensive coordinator, just has the same reaction. As if you know you were doing those interviews on the street for some TV show. Of, hey, what do you think about Nathan Rourke this season? <laughs> well, you know, I saw, I saw he got signed. Like, that, that's it, period. <laughs> and the reaction. It's, it's a crazy, crazy room. Yeah, it was a Tuesday. He got claimed on a Monday. And on Tuesday, I asked Bill O'Brien about it, and he's like, oh, yeah, I just found out that we claimed him. Like, like <laughs> granted, the power was out at the time. Like, there had just been a storm. But, like, still, uh, you, you think that information would have been passed on to Bill O'Brien. And, like, he would have slapped on his generator and tried to watch some Nathan Rourke film. And that had not happened by the time I asked him that question. So the end of the story um, speaks to, you know, how they, how they proceed, right? They're only fighting for pride, only, um, you know, for, for their own tape, their futures, et cetera. And for Belichick, it was just to continue doing the things the way, you know, coaching the way he wanted to and running his program. And that included um, benching Jack Jones and JC Jackson, where they were late, as we reported at the time, to the team hotel before the commander's game. And then JC Jackson stays at home for the Germany game. Jack Jones gets to go. He does not improve his attitude. He, in fact, after getting benched to start that game and giving up multiple catches in his first drive against the Colts, has a blow up in the locker room, as I was told, 
with Mike Pellegrino, the cornerbacks coach. He's better than the guys who are starting. Why isn't he playing more? Yada, yada, yada. Well, a day later, he was cut. And this was Bill who had had enough. Jack Jones was not playing well enough. We get into the Trent Brown stuff where he's taking a little bit too long, according to Mike Giardi, by the team's liking, to recover. And he's benched last week, according to your reporting. Been a problem for weeks, the motivation. And amid that, in between, you have defensive players who are speaking out to me, Adrian Phillips and Devon Gottschall, being like, well, I guess we got to hold him to zero. So there's this kind of unraveling. Say again? Guess we got to score on defense. Yeah, score on defense. Right, right. That happens, and Bill's trying to keep it all together. And to his credit, which there's a quote at the end we're going to say, they generally marched in the same direction. But there are things happening here that you've just never really seen in Foxborough. And maybe maybe once or twice, guys getting cut midseason, fine. But not all together. Not in such a short time. And that was just the whole experience of the season. Not only just from a losing standpoint, but like how the team is going about its business. Yeah, no, it's like, I mean... Bill Belichick was trying to patch things up and make things work. And like, even just like, you know, bringing back JC Jackson in the first place, he's just trying to kind of patch up the defense as best he can after they lose Christian Gonzalez and Marcus Jones and everything like that. And you like, you can't blame him for trying, but then just it creates all these other issues within the team. And like, I think you do have to give him credit for like disciplining Jack Jones and disciplining JC Jackson for, for doing these things. But then like, like we were talking about, then you're kind of holding Trent Brown in a different regard until this past weekend when they finally had him as a healthy scratch. So no, I mean, it's, I think it's obviously been a a very trying season for Bill Belichick, but like from people that I talked to, they, they still have faith in him as a coach. Like I was saying earlier, it's just like his ability to put the pieces in place that he needs to succeed. Like his own, I, we've, we've been saying this or like people have been saying this for years, like Bill Belichick, the GM is holding back Bill Belichick, the coach. I don't think there's ever been a better example of that than this year when people are saying that like Bill Belichick is telling them exactly what's going to happen in the game, like how the Patriots can stop it, what the Patriots need to do, what the Patriots can't do in order to not lose. And they wind up doing it anyway. Like that's only because he doesn't have enough talent on the team, especially on offense. Um, and that's just his own decision-making and as the wide receiver an offensive line and along the, and like with his offensive coaching. So I don't know what this necessarily means for Bill Belichick's future. Mike Reese reported today that he, Bill Belichick and or Bill Belichick, Jonathan Kraft and Robert Kraft are all going to meet on Monday to decide his future. I have a hard time believing that Bill Belichick would give up say on offensive personnel or personnel in general or coaching in general. If he does, I do think that's probably what's best for the Patriots for Bill Belichick to stay on his head coach, but give up some of those duties. Um, I just still have a hard time believing that Bill Belichick is going to be willing to, to take that ego hit in order to do that. Right. And find someone who's aligned with him philosophically, that the crafts would trust to think and be their own person, um, right. which is going to cause some conflict because you want your head coach and GM in alignment. They're always not going to agree, but be from the same tree or philosophy um, or just way of, Living life in the NFL. Right. Uh, a couple more tidbits. James Ferentz, assistant offensive line coach. Who knew? <laughs> um, Bill started setting the room as far as the direction, how they wanted to change their techniques and drills. Did not run meetings all that much. Uh, certainly not run drills at practice, but it was James Ferentz and Billy Yates. Multiple assistants. Uh, Billy Yates might be in this group. I'm not sure. 
Uh, but I do know others are in contract years. People do not expect Adrian Clem to come back. Again, wishing him a full recovery. Uh, just based on fit, I think his experience, obviously, if Bill leaves, it, it's going to be hard to argue for him to come back for anyone who takes over. And there was one more note I had in here. Um, oh, well, I mean, we could talk about Malik Cunningham. But, it, you know, it, it, someone told Malik Cunningham when he left, hey, you did the right thing. And granted, he went to the now number one seed in the AFC when he got signed by the Ravens. But it was no accident the outpouring of support he had in the locker room on social media that week. Because people were telling him, go, go, get out of here. Something, again, yeah. you would just never hear in Foxborough. I, I think it's interesting to hear the split opinions about Malik Cunningham. Yeah. You know, between yeah. players, coaches, front office. Because th there are still people who look at Malik Cunningham as like, this guy was not a great college quarterback. He went undrafted for a reason. He was moved to wide receiver after they saw him in rookie minicamp. And that like, it's almost like, yeah, they could have put him in there. Like in the Raiders game, they had him as the backup. So I think the idea was like, okay, this thing's not working with Mac. Like if Mac goes down, we'll see what it looks like with Malik Cunningham. But it was described to me as like, if Malik Cunningham's in there, it's, it's not really a real offense. And like, for players, if they see him in practice every day and see him be an explosive playmaker and see like the, the dynamic plays, you can certainly understand them being like, why isn't this guy playing? Why isn't he on the field? Why isn't he taking snaps at center? But if you're constructing an offense and if he doesn't fit that offense, then it's hard to convince yourself that he's the best option for you. Right. We don't need to relitigate the whole thing. It's just more the yeah. messaging around that and the exit when season had a lot more to go. Players liked him, thought he was good. Yeah. People in the building liked him, thought he could help. And they were happy to see him leave. All right. Yeah. Bill Belichick might leave on Monday, as you mentioned. And like I said at the open, I, I don't want to spend a whole lot more time talking about this in the same way that we have the last couple of months. I believe it's in the team's best interest to let him go. Um, but before we get to that, let, let me say this, because I think it's important for people to know the process of, of how we put this story together. Right. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of unnamed sources that contributed to this. And you might be tempted to go, well, I don't believe it. It's not true. Go on the record. Anyone who does that breaks one of basically two rules when you come to New England. Be on time. Don't mess with the media. Like baked into that is, is try your best. Do right by the team. But the media part is big under Belichick. And so the, the consequences are clear for anyone who does. But yeah. my approach to this story and speaking with everyone was very simple. It was just to go, hey, my job is to speak on TV, radio, my own podcast, and to write about you guys. And the best way for me to get that right is to actually talk to you first. So if you want me to get this right, as I talk to other people and get their versions of the truth, set me straight. That's all. Tell me what had happened because you're not going to get that from Bill. We all know that on Wednesdays and Fridays. But what's really happening here? And asking as many people in the locker room, front office, the coaching staff, to build a consensus on what had happened. So this is not anyone throwing bleep at the wall or hiding behind fake anonymous sources. Doug and I don't do nonfiction. We do hard reporting over months and calls and texts and conversations, which sometimes happen right there in the building. And then build all that together and produce it here for you in a story like this, because you're not finding this anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, people are happy to provide context behind decisions or like give reasoning behind what happened. And they're also happy to kind of give, their side of the story because i'm sure like part of our job is to parse out like what is and isn't accurate based on what people are giving us because everyone's got their own self-interest at hand and right, no right. one wants to 
you know, take on the full blame for, for situations. So that's why it's important to talk to as many people as we do in this situation too, so that you're not only getting one side of the story and all the blame is going on whoever that guy, you know, doesn't like uh, in a certain moment. So no, I mean, yeah, this, this took a long time to put together and uh, you know, we've, you have made it kind of a, a pattern to, to do this at the end of the season. We did this about Mac Jones at the midway point in the season. Um, and, and yeah, I, like I said, people are happy to provide context behind when things are not going well. All right. Off the journalism, uh, podium there. So Bill, again, I, I don't want to talk about Bill potentially leaving, um, could be Monday if they tried to mutually part ways, or maybe he puts up stink. I don't know. I don't really care in this moment though. Would he, will he go? Could he go? Should he go? Whatever. I want to talk about just the idea that he's been the head coach since 2000. We are in 2024 and we'll slip up. And for a lot of fans, like this has been the majority of their lifetime. The Patriots, as we know them, dynasty, first class, all of the winning, greatest coach of all time. Granted, that's not happened in the last few years. But to have that void or that person to be replaced as main character, not just in your sports life, but in American sports, suddenly gone. And someone who watched them as a kid growing up, you did the same. Like I have a column coming about this tomorrow. And the point is basically, look, I can both feel a certain way, which is gratitude for everything Belichick accomplished and write about why it's been so dysfunctional over his watch the last two years. That's being human. And when you think about other people that leave your life in whatever fashion or form, whatever level of seriousness, like what would you want to say to them at the end? More often than not, it's thank you. And so I encourage people to feel that way because I think that's how life is best lived at these exits. If Bell does exit, I don't know. Um, before you say goodbye, because all it takes is just a little bit of forethought in saying that. Um, though people, granted, still think that the impetus for this was someone emailing me saying, I hate Belichick and it's blinding me. It's not the case. Read the column. I'm done. Your turn. Yeah. I mean, I, I would personally hope that no matter what happens after Sunday's game, that like Bill Belichick, Matthew Slater, no matter what happens to them, you got like a, a very respectful ovation at this game that I was seeing today. Like it's going to be dangerous to drive. So hopefully people even get to this game. <laughs> like there's going to be a bunch of snow on the road, high winds, all that kind of stuff. I know I'm going to be leaving my house very early, but like just kind of like looking behind me, I've got like all of these programs from Super Bowls that I've been to. And like, I don't get those opportunities without Bill Belichick being head coach of the Patriots. I've got a program from the 2020, the 2002 snowball between the Patriots and Raiders behind me. And like that obviously doesn't happen without Bill Belichick being head coach. So like, I think it's important as media to obviously you have to cover someone down the middle and Bill Belichick makes that very easy by how he treats the media on a day-to-day basis but also in a situation like this where this could very well be his last game, like to have some gratitude because without Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, like a lot of people in this industry wouldn't have these jobs. Like the Patriots have a gigantic media contingency because the Patriots have been as successful as they've been. And that shouldn't have you covering a person differently because like you're, you're grateful for them, but you can't ex- at least express that in the right opportunities, which I think is now is one of those times that you can do it. Um, and it certainly would happen as well if he does actually wind up moving on from the team. But no, I mean, it's been uh, like, 
it's it's the equivalent of getting to cover like I always compared covering Tom Brady to like covering Babe Ruth. Like how many people get to say that they were covering Babe Ruth? And for Bill Belichick, it's the equivalent of covering like Vince Lombardi or you know uh, like George Hallis or something like that. Like you, you're definitely fortunate to be able to be around these people and to pick their brain and ask them questions um, and just kind of communicate with them on a day to day basis. Yeah, for sure. I mean you know, I can go to my childhood and some of the best memories, the highest joys were watching this team and the victories and the things you felt like you were a part of. And the fabric of New England has permanently been changed. Like this was title town because of the, this became title town because of the Patriots. Like right. we're better than you. And we know it speaking. We, as a fan here, uh, look at the Super Bowls. look at the coach, look at the quarterback, greatest, greatest, greatest of all time, most of all time. And so I know like you, you put really well, I've been places and seen things and done things that never would have been possible had I landed covering the Jacksonville Jaguars or basically all of the other 31 teams. And for that, I am grateful. It doesn't mean you can't be critical at the same time in right. the same way that I think people express this about, you know, people they work with or their friends with or their family, like love for something, which would be in this case, my job is, or a person is not expressed solely through all positive feelings. Like, there's a way to say this needs to be better to be critical, to give constructive criticism and feedback. And you can do that at the same time as love what you're doing or what you're covering. Obviously that's football, covering the Patriots. It's been great. That allows you to go back and forth between like, hey, I'm a professional, I'm gonna be objective, but also feel good things as we're explaining now and be critical at the same time. Because you're saying this is in the best interest of the team. This is the public trust that is the New England Patriots that affects millions of people, mostly on Sundays, um, but in a way that's deeper than I think people not, you know, tied to sports really feel. Cause I know how I felt in those stands and watching those games and in speaking with my friends or family who still follow along, like it's, it's important. And to be this close for so long and to be this close to greatness for this long, um, has meant a lot and maybe it'll continue. I know who knows, yeah, I don't really yeah. care to guess, but, um, the time might be here. So that's why I think it's worth worth pausing how much do you love by the way and I, i'll just i'll just say this i'm in the locker i'm talking with someone and finish the the interview for a story on sunday teaser it's about uh, matthew slater get a tap on the shoulder and it's brian belichick safety's coach just walking through saw me i've spoken with brian before and he's like what's up man he's got this big smile on my face and i'm thinking about our story being like <laughs> oh shit like he is absolutely just being like yeah, I really appreciate that. Great story. Made us look really good. Granted, Brian's not in there. And I was like, last time I'd seen him was on Zoom in person. I, you know, I covered a clinic that he was talking about in April. And that's that's been it since. I was like, good. I was like, hey, how much do you love? Like, it's the Jets on Sunday. And he just he just kept <laughs> smiling. Now, it still might have been. I don't even know how he felt. Like, that was the extent of the, the interaction. But he was like, I love it. In the snow. And then just, like, walked away. And... I was like, good, because even if this is not Bill leaving after this game, it's just at the end of his worst season, he can still stick it to the Jets. There's right. beautiful, petty poetry in that on Sunday. There is. And um, I will say that, you know, people spoke highly of the defensive coaches. And obviously that didn't make the piece because yes. like the issues have been on the offense, but um, you know, Brian Belichick from an X's and O's standpoint, like Gerard and Steve running that defense. DeMarcus Covington could be like a, a, a defensive coordinator next year. 
Mike Pellegrino does a good job with the cornerbacks. Like that staff, which goes to show that like, that's what Bill Belichick knows and values is a very strong one. And, you know, if Bill does go and if like Steve and Brian follow him, I think it does kind of weaken that defensive staff. And I think that then you've got to kind of fill in some of those pieces. So very curious to see what happens on the defensive staff, um, depending on what happens with Bill, but no, it's, uh, it's the jets. And I, I mean, I know it's fun to beat the jets, but like this is a, <laughs> Six at the same time, a game the Patriots kind of need to lose just to like stay as high up in that draft order as possible. I hate to say that, but like it, it, it really, I don't know. It, it could get rough out there. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the game quickly and get out of here. We usually do the three, two, one keys matchups and wild card. Let's, let's just do that. I'll start as far as the keys. Um, you got to be able to block. Quinn and Williams on pass plays. Uh, you saw a lot of internal pressure from the Bills on Sunday. Obviously, no quarterback loves internal pressure, but that dude doesn't. You know, the, the Jets don't need to send blitzes, and they don't. Um, the second few, the second lowest blitz rate in the league, and it's because Quinn and Williams is so good at just getting by your centers and your guards. Patriots yeah. obviously dealing with um, a rookie or backup at both guard spots, and then David Andrews. If they can neutralize him in the snow, which would be an advantage to the offensive line, pass rushers hate the snow. That's great. If not, like he could single-handedly lead to a turnover that changes the game, strip sack, yeah. forcing an interception, QB hit, whatever. But like that's number one for me as far as an offense is not going to run the ball particularly well and hasn't in three weeks. But passing, you at least have to give Bailey's happy time and especially directly in front of him. Yeah, I mean, I'd say something like to to go on the opposite end. Like you've got Trevor Simeon that you're playing on the other <laughs> side of the ball, like. Like, it's pretty easy to force turnovers against Trevor Simeon. The Patriots just have to be able to capitalize off of those because that's something that they've had a harder time doing on offense. Like, the on defense, when the Patriots turn the ball over, their defense typically does an amazing job of stepping up and either not allowing a touchdown, or like, like limiting teams to a field goal. Patriots offense, when they do get those turnovers against Trevor Simeon and even a potential fumbles uh, with Bryce, with Brees Hall in the snow, the offense just needs to be able to capitalize on it and, you know, not trip over themselves uh, out there on offense, which is something that, you know, people have kind of mentioned the Patriots have a, a hard time not doing is tripping over themselves. I also think they can post a shutout. And the best way to do that is to handle Garrett Wilson. And this seems easy, right? You know, like he's only averaged about four and a half catches per game against Patriots and around 58 yards, which was really blown out by that first game last year. Uh, but Trevor Simeon is not going to win this game on his own. Wilson has 70 more targets than anyone on the offense. The offense stinks. It's boring. It's bad. The offensive line is not very good. So I don't think Brees Hall is going to hurt them. But Garrett Wilson shakes loose, breaks a tackle. That's six points right there. And that's six points yeah. the Patriots might not be able to give away. So I think you're right as far as getting a turnover. But if you just limit them, you might, yeah. <laughs> might win this game 6 nothing. And I'm laughing because it will be ugly to watch all of that. But that's how bad the Jets have been on offense. Like the, the deeper numbers, Patriots yeah. are last in scoring. The deeper numbers would tell you they've been worse on offense than the Patriots this year. And the only way that you can avoid losing 7-6 rather than winning 6-0 is to, once again, prevent turnovers on offense. And obviously you mentioned that very well with Quinton Williams, but Sauce Gardner is their other you know, best defensive player. And, I think that Billy Zappi's smart enough to stay as far away from Sauce Gardner as possible. But I mean, they've got some other talented defenders on that roster as well. 
um, DJ Reed, a very good cornerback too. And like, you could very easily make mistakes against that Jets secondary. So that's, that's the best way that the Jets are going to put points on the board is either scoring on defense off of a turnover or putting the Jets offense in such an advantageous position, field position wise, that they basically have like no choice but to score a touchdown. All right, two matchups. I kind of gave two already, David Andrews and Quinn Williams, and then, you know, any double team of Garrett Wilson. Um, but looking on the other side, like the Patriots tackling for the most part has been pretty solid this year. And so I'm just looking at some of that linebacking core that's banked up. Jelani Tavai has a tooth injury all of a sudden. Juwan Bentley's been like so-so. Yeah. Um, you need to wrap up against Brees Hall. So I'm looking at that second level yeah. and just saying, I think the defensive line is going to have an advantage. Uh, against a bad interior line for the Jets. So when you come and crash in, don't miss. Brees Hall versus this linebacking core is another one that I just think they, they can win that. Um, it's more as, okay, if you lose this, then you're in trouble. Uh, can my matchup be Chad Ryland versus the wind? <laughs> yes, because absolutely. That's that's honestly the one that I'm I'm most intrigued by because it's it's gone down since this point, but I looked at the forecast on Tuesday and I was like, Oh God, snow and max gusts up to 52 miles per hour. Like, like you basically can't kick in those conditions. I think it's gone down to like the 25, 30 mile per hour range. We'll see what it's like at game time. But like, even that with the way that Chad Ryland has been missing some field goals this season, like this could be a, a true adventure for the Patriots kicking wise. And I could envision a scenario where like Bill Belichick wants to win this game so badly. Like he I don't see him trusting Chad Ryland in this game in these conditions, unless it's like an absolutely perfect situation. So you could see some, like you could even see some like wild punts in this game. Like, like I can envision the Patriots like punting from like the jets 35 or 40 yard line. Like it, it might be one of those like crazy field position, old school battles. If the weather really is as bad as it looks like it could be. So I'm glad you brought up Chad Ryland. Um, I chatted with him. For a while, mentioned on this podcast, covered him in high school. Just incredible uh, coincidence that he's back here, and, and so am I. And I was asking about the weather. He says, I hope it snows a foot. I was like, come again? <laughs> I hope it snows. I want all the bad weather. And this is a guy who, you know, we saw in Denver, can have some of the worst misses of his you know, season, young career, and then go and nail a 56-yarder. He still has the worst <laughs> field goal percentage in the entire league. I wish I had that confidence when I was that young. Um, but he wants it to snow. He also said he's going to go back to an older routine this off season, which struck me as interesting. And mm -hmm. granted, I don't think you can get much worse than he's been this year. So if he goes back to some routine and changes up something about his approach, seems like a good idea. I think just naturally he'll be better next year. He's going to have competition, but that was interesting that he, he said both of those things to me, at least. Definitely interesting. And It'll make for a fun story if he's significantly better next year taking this new approach to learn about what that approach is and, and how it helped him. Yeah. All right. Wild card. Um, for me, I'm really intrigued about the crowd. Um, yeah. Do they do they boo? I mean, a halftime lead against the Jets is not going to feel good, but you're still not. I, I would be the, the least likely outcome is, is a blowout against the Jets. So if you're you're down 3 nothing, you're down 10 nothing. I would just say wait. Like history tells you. The team that has not lost to the Jets since 2015 will bring this around. Granted, again, this has been a historic season for a lot of the wrong reasons. Um, but did they shout at the end, thank you, Bill, or some iteration of that? If there's a win, if there's a big win, a please stay, Bill. 
or anything about the crafts. Like the attendance is one thing with the snow, but is there an engagement level that speaks to something that maybe you don't hear on talk radio or people yelling at me on Twitter um, that tend to be more negative? Again, depending on the outcome, but it's it's a big game for the crowd. It is. It, have you looked up like seat prices or anything for this game? No. Are you doing that right now? I, I was in the process of starting to buy process. you more time and think of Belichick related <laughs> chance that could be said. No, I, I can look this up while I'm speaking. I'm, I'm pretty good at doing that. I, I do that with my, my family, my children all the time, talking to them while I'm on my phone. Um, but I, I'm most intrigued by Bill Belichick and how he acts both. I don't know when this is going to come out, but like Friday at 11 AM in his press press conference with us. And then also, on Sunday in his post-game press conference, you can get into the stadium for $25 for one ticket, $26, eight tickets together. So this is a very cheap ticket to get into. I'm a little bit surprised by that since it could be Bill Belichick's last game, but I digress. Um, I just like, I think Bill will probably just handle these pressers like any other week since, you know, according to Mike Reese's report, no decision has been made. There's going to be a meeting on Monday. So, Bill Belichick presumably even has no idea what's going to happen after this game, but like, does he do a Friday bill tomorrow? Is he kind of sullen like he was on Monday and Wednesday after the game? Does he give his typical, like, got to watch the film, blah, 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 blah. Or do we see a different side of him since this could be his last game? I lean towards him just being the same guy that we've always known and unpredictable and all those things. But I don't know. It's just, it's, it's worth, it's worth wondering. It is. I, um, I'm trying to think what I think we'll get. I think it'll be, I think it's going to be a sour bill Friday. I've really had, enjoyed the return two of Friday. Good bill. Fridays in a row with bill. I know. I just think he's, he, he's irritated. He'll yeah. expect what's coming. Like Wednesday was Wednesday was bad, just from like a, an openness standpoint. Like whoever he is, I don't care. Like I, I can right. do my job regardless. Yeah. Um, but when you just think about a mood, I I I think he knows what we're going to ask. I don't think he wants to engage because he hasn't. I'm hoping I'm wrong. And then Sunday post game, the the real interesting part will be if they win because if they lose, it is going to be all time bad bill. I'm talking about yeah. grunts, sneers, right. glares, no words, awkward silence. <laughs> the absolute works of post-game Bill after losses, especially the Jets, possibly his last game. Questions about his future, yada, yada. He will be, I believe, scheduled for a Wednesday morning press conference. If I'm him and I think I'm on my way out, I'd probably just skip that, yeah, and take whatever fine. But, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves. You asked about tomorrow and Sunday. Um, it's uh, So, from Wednesday morning? Wednesday? No, he usually does these right away. No, I thought you said he'd be scheduled for a Wednesday morning. Did you mean no? Monday I think Monday. Monday. If I said oh, Wednesday, yeah, I meant yeah, Monday. You said Wednesday. Uh, yeah. Based yeah. on based on his history, just a guess. Right. Um, but no, that's a really I mean, great yeah, call. It's, it's a bizarre situation. Like if they are meeting on Monday, then like what he meets with us at eight a.m. We write up all our stories about what Bill Belichick had to say, and then like he could be moving on from the team by four or five. Like that's just a it's an odd situation, but that's one we might be in. Right, because then even last year, it, it, this is like very inside baseball when it comes to media, but eh, maybe it's not. We'll ask those questions, and he'll intentionally have them early in the morning to say, well, we just started on this, I don't know. Or I haven't right. seen players. Monday after a game, right? How's yeah. so-and-so who got hurt? Yeah. 
the doctors have talked to him, but he'll say, <laughs> I need time to figure it out. And sometimes yeah. that's true, but it's also yeah. strategic in that I can't tell you if I don't know the full picture. And that's why he does it so early. And so this will be, well, we're going to look ahead and see what we need to do better um, next year. We haven't started that process yet. We just finished the Jets game. And you might ask about his future. He's like, look, we're just really trying to prepare and, and go through our regular offseason process, even if that might not even, even happen, I suppose is what I'm saying. Did you, did you listen to him on WEI, not to go too long on this? Uh, a little bit. No, I didn't listen to the whole interview. At the end, they they were like kind of having fun with it. And I forgot who it was who asked. It was either like, I think it might have been Greg. He was like, all right, so Bill, like, should we expect to be doing this again with you next year? Like, are, are you going to be a guest every Monday on, on the show? And like, he actually laughed. Like he, he like chuckled and was like, I'm looking forward to the jets. Like he like had some fun with it, which was interesting to me. Not even just like, Oh, Bill's being fun. But like, like they were basically asking him about his job security. Like if he's, if he's going to get fired and like, right. he was willing to laugh it off, which I think was, was interesting. Um, it was kind of a fun side to this whole story because like he's had, he's not had any fun with this, but he no. was at least ha- willing to have a little bit of fun in that moment. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, that is interesting. I mean, because he, you know, everyone's subject to their own moods. I think bill a little bit more, especially publicly, uh, again, yeah. post win, post loss. It's just so vastly different or during the week or whatever, but he can have the media and has in the past eating out of the palm of his hand. Yeah, like yeah. he's captivating. He's an excellent easy. storyteller. It's just how he chooses to be and why. So it's interesting. He chose to be like that on Monday. I had not listened to the end of that with EI. I don't want to read into it. Um, right. But those are the moments where I go, yeah, most of this is bad. Most of this is boring, right. short deflection, blah, blah, blah. But the times that are good, despite that, I appreciate because we should all be rooting for an open chuckling, happier bill as we should be rooting for people to be happier and laughing. I think in, in uh, every corner of, of our lives. Um, Not a lot of laughs at this story. Are the Patriots fans going to be laughing on Sunday though? uh, If they win or lose, that's a loaded question. Ignore the draft component of that. If you can do the Patriots win is what I really wanted to ask. I think they do win. Um, Okay. Yeah, I agree. I don't think, I don't think Patriots fans want them to win, but I think they do win. What do you think? 10, six. Um, I think it's ugly. I think there's a little bit of comedy in there and then some scare, but I just Trevor Simeon in the snow, one receiver to throw to like that defense is still playing. Well, Bailey chucked the ball out of bounds at any sign of danger and just live to see another down. Like they'll screw this up. They played this game last year, 10, three almost walk off on Marcus Jones punt return at the end of the last minute. And they won because they deadlocked it three to three and the jets screwed up punting with less than a minute left to an actual human being as opposed to out of bounds. And um, I think they can win like that, but the Jets will get one more field goal and then set. All right, here's Doug Kide, the Boston Herald. I promise I will not ask you to come back in a week or two or whatever it's been <laughs> right away because uh, it's been a lot a lot of work went into the story. Again, we, we ask you to read it, see it for yourself. We tried to divulge as much as we could here, but nothing beats the whole thing. I will see you tomorrow for hopefully a sweet, not sour, Bill Belichick. Thank you, sir. For Friday, Bill. Absolutely.